So as I said, we're jumping back into our current series. Um, we are um, in Acts. We're at the end of chapter 5 and uh, starting in verse 27 this morning. And I've called this, uh, this installment this morning, as you can see from the screen, Nothing's Gonna Stop It. And uh, really, it's just a bit of an encouragement to me um, because I've got a sore throat. And so that's my way of kind of keeping myself going here by saying nothing's going to stop what I've prepared this morning. No, actually, that's not why I've called it there. This is a phrase that I've borrowed from a theologian called uh, Bill Jackson, who writes about the biblical meta-narrative, which is the, it's just a fancy term for the big story of God. And the big story of God is all about the establishment of God's kingdom for his glory. And uh, early on in the story, we know that Satan tried to attack and sabotage what God meant for good. Sin entered the world in what we know as the fall, which is not the BBC series with Gillian Anderson. It's <laughs> much worse than that. Um, but God's purpose is unstoppable, and he is redeeming his kingdom through his son, Jesus, who died for our sins and rose from the grave grave propelling us into a new future age and back in Acts chapter 1 um, we, we read about um, the ascension um, of Jesus and uh, we know that before he ascended into heaven he also commissioned the people of God to go as missionaries and evangelists to call the nations back to him and to teach them to love and serve God by faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is the story of which you and I are a part of, and it's, it's actually marching towards a climax when Jesus will come again. Yeah, we heard that bit. Jesus will come again, and he will make all things new. And actually what we see right throughout the book of Acts, which we've been exploring together, is just these series of waves, okay, one after the other, these waves of the Holy Spirit moving and of God's kingdom advancing first to the jews then to the gentiles we haven't quite reached that part yet we're going to find out about it soon we're about to turn a corner soon into the second wave and then to the ends of the earth and what we're beginning to see as we work our way through the story of the early church is more and more persecution we began we first read about persecution back at the start of chapter 4 um, when Peter and John were arrested and they were dragged in front of the Sanhedrin. Uh, that was just after they'd, if you remember, just after they'd, they'd healed a crippled beggar at the temple gate called Beautiful. Um, but God's redemptive plan is unfolding at pace. His kingdom is advancing and the enemy is trying all he can to thwart God's plan, to stop it in its tracks. But nothing can stop what God has planned and purposed to do. In fact, his plan is so good that he can actually take what the enemy has intended to hurt us and harm us. And he can use that very thing to bring about his purposes in us and through us. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later on. We're going to talk about how God is forming us and shaping us even through the various trials and hardships that we face. So without any further ado, let's dive into our passage this morning and read it together. Okay, the words are up on the screen. Verse 27. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. 
We give you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour that we might that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, Leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purposes or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay. Just to set the scene for us a little bit this morning, if you remember back to the death of Ananias and Sapphira, uh, the apostles, uh, after that, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And as a result, many people came to believe the good news of Jesus. And large crowds started to uh, gather to them. Not started, they were already starting to gather, but it just kind of, it, pro- it propelled it even further on. The sick were brought to them and were healed. Those tormented with demons as well were brought and were delivered. And last week we read about the high priest and the Sadducees, who were filled with jealousy and, and actually had the apostles thrown into jail. And what happened was an angel of the Lord showed up in the middle of the night and performed a miraculous jailbreaking calf. Talked all about that last week. And before long, they were out in the, in the temple courts preaching again. Eventually, the captain of the temple guard found them standing out in the temple courts preaching the people, or teaching the people, and so at this point they were dragged back in front of the Sanhedrin. So that's where we are in the story. Now, the Sanhedrin, we've bumped into these guys before, back in chapter 4, and it's really easy actually for us to make these guys the bad guys, to make them the villains in the story. All right, and if this were pantomime, every time I'd say Sanhedrin, you'd say? Exactly, yeah, it didn't take too much encouragement there. Uh, the Sanhedrin, as long as you don't do that at me, I will be okay. <laughs> the Sanhedrin were the ruling Jewish council that were instrumental in the crucifixion of Jesus. So for the last number of months or so, they'd been right bang in the middle, trying their best to thwart and disrupt the unfolding story of God. 
They thought that killing Jesus would have put an end to all the disruption and uprising that seemed to be all around them, but not so. The apostles were an inconvenience uh, that the Sanhedrin just felt like they had to shut down. They felt compelled to deal with them, and they'd already tried once to shut them down. And they kind of hark back to their earlier instructions. Verse 28, they say, We give you strict orders not to teach in this name. We've already told you guys, stop it, cut it out. We don't want to hear any more about this. Stop talking about Jesus. We've got to ask the question why. The Catholic explored this a little bit last week. Why will the Sanhedrin doing everything in their power to shut down this movement? Firstly, jealousy. Verse 17, which Kath shared from last week, told us that they were filled with jealousy. The apostles, you see, had a really fruitful and successful uh, ministry, and the high priest and all his associates, they just couldn't deal with it. Who were these new boys in town getting all the attention, drawing followers away from the high priest and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin? And not only were they getting all the attention, but they were undermining the authority of the Sanhedrin because they were accusing them of killing Jesus. And so it was a kind of double blow. And so it must have felt to the Sanhedrin that they were losing their grip. They were losing control. So much so that they were just desperate to get control back again. They were desperate to tighten their grip. And verse 33 tells us that they were furious and wanted to put the apostles to death. But and maybe before we stand up on our soapbox and point a condemning finger at the Sanhedrin, maybe we should actually examine our own hearts. I don't know about you, but there's been times when my heart has been overcome by jealousy. Maybe you too have found yourself jealous. Maybe it's in relation to giftedness and perhaps you look at others and get jealous when you see their gifts and abilities. Maybe it's in relation to opportunities. Someone got an opportunity that you didn't get and you're getting jealous about it. Maybe it's someone in work who got a job that you wanted or perhaps you felt you were a better fit for it but they got it, not you. I've had to deal with jealousy. Uh, I've had around some people in my life, in, in my life who appear uh, to me to always land on their feet. There's been times that I have looked on in frustration that things that I've had to give blood, sweat, and toil for, they haven't had to. The circumstances just seem to line up ever so nicely, but yet for me, it didn't seem to. That's jealousy and insecurity. And jealousy comes out in a whole manner of different ways, and it's always, always a manifestation of our own insecurity. And it's not a new thing either. If we go even further back to Genesis, we'll see that Cain's problem was jealousy. He had a brother called Abel who had found favor with God, and he couldn't handle it. 
He couldn't handle the fact that God looked upon Abel with favor. God looked upon Abel's sacrifice with favor. And then we go forward a little bit to the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel. And we'll read about King Saul. And he had a handsome commander in his army who was popular with the people and the army officers as well. His name was David and everything Saul asked David to do, he did it successfully. He did it skillfully. David's light started just to burn a little bit too bright for Saul. And on one occasion, the men were returning home from battle and the, and the women came out from all the towns to meet of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. And as they danced, they, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. I imagine that would just make you a little bit jealous if you were King Saul. So I can kind of feel sorry for him a little bit. But where he went after that was not a good place. Pretty dark place. 1 Samuel 18, verse 9 to 10. It says, From that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. And the next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. So jealousy is not a new thing. And it's easy to look upon the Sanhedrin with self-righteousness and to paint them as the villains, but there's a lesson here for us. Don't give jealousy an inch in our own lives. King Saul succumbed to jealousy and it led him to his own downfall. The Lord warned Abel, sin is crouching at your door. You must master it or it's going to have you. And he didn't master it. And it had him. So it's worth us examining our own hearts and asking, where is jealousy taking root? Jealousy, you see, begins with a lie that there's not enough for me. And that's where the chief priests and his associates had gone. They'd gone down a path towards fear and anger. Their fear drove them to try and control the threat to their existence, and their anger led them to actually murder Jesus. And now they wanted to do the same thing to the apostles. So we need to be careful not to give jealousy an inch in our lives because it won't produce good fruit. It will only lead us to anger, to bitterness, and to resentment. And perhaps to quote you too, it gets you stuck in a moment that you can't get out of. And one of the ways we can actually guard our hearts is choosing how to respond when somebody gets blessed, somebody we know gets blessed. Actually choosing how we want to respond when we see somebody that has, has favor upon their lives. We can actually choose to celebrate them. We can choose to thank God for that. We can choose to ask God to bless them. I find that a really helpful way of just pushing in the other direction, partnering with God's heart. Just taking, just taking my eyes off myself. And where somebody's found favor, just, 
just thanking God for that and just blessing them. And if we can learn to celebrate and champion others when they have favor or blessing on, on their lives, then I think it will really help us keep sin at the door. Because the truth is that there is more than enough favor and blessing to go, to go around. God hasn't got limited supplies, as the enemy would maybe like us to think. He hasn't got limited supplies so that there's just enough for Simon, but there's not enough for me. He is the God of more than enough, and he chooses to bless us and provide for us in ways that are unique to each one of us, because he knows best. So when someone else gets something that we think we deserve and we feel jealousy rising up in us, we need to run to the Father. Run as fast as you can and let him remind you of his perfect love for you. Sons and daughters, they know who they are. They know that they are approved by the Father. They know that they don't need to prove themselves to earn his favor. So back to the pantomime. I say Sanhedrin, you say, but it could just have easily have been you or me. Anyway, as we move on in the story, we meet a hero of sorts, a man called Gamaliel. He was the grandson of the famous Hebrew scholar Hillel. And uh, before I talk a little bit more about Gamaliel, I'll just uh, rehydrate my throat here. So uh, as Kaf mentioned last week, there are a number of different sects within Judaism. Uh, the two major ones were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There's a joke about the Sadducees, but I'm not going to tell it. It's a bit of a dad joke. The Pharisees um, were actually the more moderate of the two, okay? Uh, and Gamaliel was the head of school, if you like, for the Pharisees. He was also the mentor for uh, Saul of Tarsus, who we know by his Roman name, Paul. And we're going to meet him quite soon as we move through, through uh, this series. Um, we're in chapter 5 at the minute, but um, we're gonna, Peter's going to accelerate us through chapters uh, 6, 7, and then into chapter 8. So we're about to kind of press fast forward pretty soon in this series. Um, and we're going to meet Saul of Tarsus soon. And we probably couldn't describe him as a moderate, okay? He was, he was definitely after the blood of, of the apostles, but uh, in this situation, Gamaliel kept his head and he injected some much-needed wisdom into the moment. He'd uh, clearly been around for a while and he'd seen an uprising or two. Uh, so he was, he was urging the Sanhedrin to keep their heads. There had been others, of course, before Jesus who'd, who'd claimed to be the Messiah and had gathered a band of followers around him. And in each of these cases, the Crusades fell apart just shortly after the leader died. So Gamaliel's advice to the Sanhedrin was, leave these men alone. Let them go for their purpose or activity, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it's going to fail. But if it's from God, you're not going to be able to stop these guys. You're only going to find yourself fighting against God. And as we'll see as we move through the book of Acts, the gospel is unstoppable. Nothing can stand against God's redemption plan unfolding. And it's worth us remembering that. 
It's easy to frame our lives through our own circumstances or even in the moment of history that we find ourselves in. But actually, our stories only make sense when we frame them in the big story that God is writing, His redemptive plan for humanity. And that redemptive plan, it's unstoppable. Which means if we're actors in the big story of God, then we are the victors. We're on the winning team. And I love how Gamaliel points this out to the Sanhedrin. Hey guys, be careful you don't end up fighting against God because you're not going to win that one. Gamaliel's words were intended to warn the Sanhedrin, but I actually read it as a promise. Nothing and no one can stand against God's purposes and God's plans. So question for us, what are we framing our lives with? What story are we aligned to? How are we orientating ourselves in these times? And the Word of God is the primary way that we frame our lives within the big story of God. It orientates us and directs us towards Jesus, who is enthroned in heaven, ruling and reigning. And Romans 8, um, maybe a good one to take away, it's one of those passages that orientates us and reminds us of God's unfolding redemption story. And I just want to read um, from verse 31 on this morning. And maybe you might want to close your eyes as I read this. and You might just want to let God remind you of His unfolding plan for your life. That He is faithful to His promises. That He is with you. And He will bring His purposes in your life to completion. If we'll trust Him. So verse 31. What then? Shall we say in response to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one, Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate, separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Our Lord. In the midst of these mad times that we find ourselves in, have you remembered that we are more than conquerors? Are you living like, are we living like we're on the winning team? I'm reading a book at the minute called Resilient by John Eldridge. 
Um, and he has some really timely insights into this mad moment in history that we find ourselves in post-pandemic. And I think he has some real nuggets of gold to share about finding our bearings in these uncertain times by orientating our hearts and our lives around Jesus and his story. And if I can just share one quote with you, um, it would be this one. Story is the way we orientate ourselves in the world. Story is how we figure things out, bring order and meaning to the events around us. The story we hold to at any given time shapes our perceptions, hopes, and expectations. It gives us a place to stand. In this mad hour on earth, what story are you telling yourself or letting others tell you? In the midst of constant bombarding news and information, battling to win over our hearts and minds, and it is literally battling to win over our hearts and minds, can I encourage you to put his story over any other story that might be out there? Eugene Peterson's message version of Ephesians 1, uh, verse 20 to 23 says this, God raised Jesus from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven, in charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. He is in charge of it all has the final word on everything. At the center of this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The the world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. I love that. He is in charge of it all. He's in charge of running the universe, everything from galaxies to governments. Thank goodness. But does your current state of mind reflect that confidence that Jesus is ruling and reigning above all? Let me be honest with you. Um, I probably couldn't count the number of times that my heart felt disconnected from that truth just in this last week alone. So if you're sitting there and you're thinking, actually, I feel a bit of, I don't feel like I'm living completely connected to that truth. Well, join the club. We probably all fade that truth, kind of the volume of that truth just fades. And we have to go back to it again and again. We have to reorientate ourselves again and again in the big story that God is telling. And for me, um, even just in this last week alone, as, as kind of things have come in, um, I've just had to refocus on Jesus, refocus on his story. And that's helped me to find my bearings again. But let's be sure we give the story God is telling more attention than any other story that is out there. Whether that's the chaos and stress that exists in your own life or whether it's the craziness that's all around us right now. God's story orientates us and helps us to make sense of our lives. 
So can I encourage you, as I often say, uh, to build rhythms in your life, uh, to build rhythms into your day that help you to make sure that that frame is steady. Spending time reading or listening to the Bible, allowing the Word of God to point us towards Jesus, who promises to tend to our souls. I know how we need Him to tend to our souls in these challenging times. There are many different ways that you can do that, and I love how um, the end of uh, October, Verity interviewed Joanne and Kath, uh, who gave us some handles on what that could look like. So I'm not going to spend any more time on that. All I'm going to say is if you don't have rhythms that help you keep the big story frame nice and steady, then go and chat to a few people who do and get some ideas of how you can do that. Okay, so uh, let's go back to our passage in Acts chapter 5 and pick up just after Gamaliel. Okay, verse 40. It says, His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is Messiah. So hang on a minute. Maybe there's an error in the text here. These guys just got flogged. And that's 40 lashes of the whip, less one. 39 lashes with the whip. Not a laughing matter at all. People were actually known to have died from this punishment on occasions. It would have torn the, the flesh off their back. So their backs would have been shredded in pieces. Yet somehow they managed to come out of this ordeal, praising God and rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. I find that a little bit crazy. And the response of the apostles, it's actually a hallmark example of what rejoicing in suffering looks like. And I think we need to talk a little bit about suffering. Because as we go through the story, we're going to see so many examples of where there was hardship, there was suffering, but yet the, they, they managed to guard their hearts and keep rejoicing through it and keep looking to Jesus. And personally, I find that quite hard. Whether it's through persecution or just life circumstances, all of us, unfortunately, are going to face suffering at some point in our lives. There's just no getting away from it. It's part of the fall. But we know that at the end of our story, all will be well. There will be no more pain, or death, or mourning, or crying, for the old order of things will pass away. But for a little while, we have some hardships that we must endure. And it's important to talk about this because there's something about hardships that can refine us and transform us. God is able to take what the enemy intends to hurt us and harm us and actually use it to form character 
in us. The Bible is full of exhortations telling us to rejoice in our suffering. Here's just a few this morning. Romans 5 verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. James chapter 1 verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, um, I don't believe that uh, this rejoicing um, should be some fake kind of outward-looking rejoicing, uh, whilst inwardly we're still falling apart, right? Just kind of going around in pain, but like putting on a brave face and smiling and pretending everything is okay. Uh, and there's plenty of that goes on, and that's actually called religion. Um, but actually, I think it's possible to endure hardships and have a deep well of peace and joy overflowing in us despite our circumstances. Well, how is that possible? I think we can look at uh, John chapter 4 to help us um, find the answer. It's the story of uh, the woman who meets Jesus at the well. And if you remember that story, he promises her living water. The reason hardships can produce much fruit in our lives is because there are seasons of invitation to go deeper with Jesus. He's where we turn to in our desperation. He's the living water, and he invites each one of us to come to him and draw strength and joy from him. Now, what I'm not saying is that every hard thing that happens in our lives is because of Jesus. Most of the trials we face aren't sent by him. But he does have deep wells for us to draw from in the midst of all of our challenging circumstances. He's always able to take what the enemy has sent to harm us and use it to form character in us. There's always an invitation, whatever we're facing, to draw deep. He has deep wells for us, us to draw from in the midst of all of our challenging circumstances. So why am I telling you this? Well, I don't think we're done with hardships. I think there's many more ahead of us in these challenging times. But if we can stay close to Jesus, we'll be more than just all right. He has so much living water for us to draw from throughout the days and the weeks and the months ahead, regardless of what we might face, regardless of what we might walk through. And we can overflow with peace and with joy, regardless of what our circumstances might look like. All right, we're going to worship um, some more. Kath, if you want to come back up and join, join me here. Um, but I just want to briefly highlight some ways that you could respond to what I've shared today um, and I've put them up on the screen here so feel free to take a photograph of that if that's helpful for you 
um, or just scribble a note down or just remember it even if you have a good memory. Um, but per, perhaps you've been struggling with uh, jealousy and you've believed the lie that there's not enough for you. And if that's you, I'd encourage you to, to spend some time this week asking the Father to remind you how much he loves you. Maybe you felt the Lord uh, convicting you whenever I was talking about rhythms with Jesus. So if that's you, I'd encourage you just to commit to putting rhythms into your life that keep you connected to Jesus and the story that he's telling. And finally, maybe you find yourself in the middle of a hardship. And if that's you, I'd invite you to bring your pain and your sadness to Jesus and ask him to give you peace and joy, to ask him to give you living water. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that your promises never fail. That your story is unstoppable. Oh Lord, we thank you that you've caught us up in your story, that you've invited us to partner with you. Lord, we thank you that we're on the winning team. That in the end, all will be well. And Lord, we thank you that in the meantime, you have so much living water for us to draw from. Your well is deep. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd, your well within each one of us would bubble up. Your peace and your joy within each one of us would just bubble up and would overflow. Holy Spirit, come and have your way. In Jesus' name. Amen.